All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 11. We're going to continue on. I thought maybe I might, may break away from Revelation, but um, America needs to hear this message. <clears throat> and there goes our boys and girls. They, they're going to get training for being our next uh, leaders. They're today's church, but they're tomorrow's leaders. Pray for our children. Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, we have a long introduction, so let's get to the introduction, then we'll read the passage of Scripture and pray, and when we read, we'll have you to stand. I gave to you some notes. If you don't have those notes, well, that's because we ran out of bulletins, but uh, in those notes... It is explained that the book of Revelation is based on uh, three judgments, and it's just a matter of interpretation as to how we uh, interpret the uh, duration of those judgments. As we explained before, the judgment of the seals, there are seven of them, and as you read those uh, six seals, you see that it brings us to the end of the tribulation period to the time in which Christ comes and sets up his kingdom here on earth. And then the seventh seal introduces us to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets do the same thing. They take us to the end of the tribulation period where in the seventh trumpet it introduces to us the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, uh, there is a long parenthesis, as you see in chapters 10 all the way through chapter 14. And then when we get to the bold judgments, we find that there is an introduction that we could call a parenthesis that gets into the bold judgments. And then from the bold judgments, which take us all the way to the end of the tribulation period, we have another large, long parenthesis before we get to the end of uh, the coming, of, or the end of the tribulation period, and that would be Revelation 17 and 18 and 19, where we have a lot of events going on, God uh, destroying the political system, First, he destroys the religious system and then the political system. Those will all be interesting subjects. And so each one of those judgments end at the coming of Christ. But there are different interpretations. I've given to you one there. It's the most popular, but I completely disagree with that. But I wanted you to see what most people believe. I believe the third interpretation is... Uh, that uh, each one of those judgments end at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that they begin at different times. Revelation chapter uh, 6 begins the six seals with the Lord Jesus Christ, opening that first seal at the beginning of the tribulation period, taking us all the way to the end. Then we have the trumpet judgments that begin at the midpoint of the tribulation period, taking us all the way to the end. And then you have the bold judgments that are the final days of the tribulation period. They come very rapidly, taking us to the very end. 
And the reason I believe that is because of the parentheses that we find in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, we have the parentheses between the sixth seal and the trumpet judgments as they are introduced by the seventh seal. And that gives us the understanding that throughout the duration of those seven years, God's Holy Spirit is still going to be poured out upon the earth. We're going to see that in just a moment as we get into the second parentheses. As a result of God pouring out his spirit, there is going to be a multitude of people from every nation, kindred, and tongue that, that trust, their, trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And most of them are going to be beheaded or put in prison. They're going to be treated very cruelly throughout that duration for trusting Christ. And we're given the explanation of that in Revelation chapter 7. And then when we get to the second parenthesis, we come to a very important time in the, the history of uh, this tribulation period, and that is the abomination of desolation and God preparing the earth by the two witnesses and how many of the people in the world will refuse after seeing all the miracles that God has performed will still refuse to put their trust in Jesus Christ. So it's a very interesting study. The third parenthesis deals with Satan being unleashed, coming to earth. He knows that his time is short. He goes after Israel. He seeks to try to destroy and bring Israel to total annihilation, but he's not successful because God will protect Israel and put them in a hiding place during the final uh, days of the tribulation period. And, of course, when we come to the final parenthesis, God destroys the Babylonian system that we have today. We have a world Babylonian system that is both religious and political, and it'll all be set up in a very strong way uh, during the time that the Antichrist reigns. We can already see this world system. Uh, we're looking at now at a central banking system. It's going to become a world banking system. We're looking at an ecumenical system uh, that is uh, being set up already. And those that are far-right Christians are not included in that system. And so we can see the Lord preparing everything, the political system as we understand it, bringing us to a one-world currency, bringing the world together globally so we're connected as one big nation. We see that all being done through social media. All of these things are being set up. So this morning, we want to give focus to that second parenthesis that we find in Revelation chapter 10, Revelation chapter 11. We want to give attention especially to Revelation chapter 11. And then it really gets exciting when we get into chapters 12 and chapters 13, where we get into the mark of the beast and the world currency and how everything is coming together right now to make that happen. So if you would take your Bibles, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 11. But again, I want to give emphasis on what we see in Revelation chapter 7, or Revelation chapter 10, verse number 7. And then we'll jump over to verse number 7 and read down to the end of the chapter. So let's stand as we give reading to the Word of God. 
First of all, Revelation chapter 10, verse number 7, we are told that in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, then we find the mystery of God should be finished, as he had declared to the servants, the prophets. And as we continue reading, we begin at verse number 7 of Revelation chapter 11. And there in Revelation chapter 11, verse number 7, And when they shall have finished their testimonies, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and of the kindreds and of the tongues and of the nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and they shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they shall dwell upon the earth, shall rejoice, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God will enter into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell. And the earthquake were, were slain of men, seven thousand. The remnant were affrighted. They gave glory to the God of heaven. Notice the remnant that were affrighted. So this is the second woe. It is past. Behold, the third woe cometh quickly. The third woe gets into the bold judgments. And so we read, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and the twenty elders, that is the church now in heaven, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshiped God. Now, notice that they're in heaven. We are in heaven. We're watching what's going on here upon the earth, saying that we give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art, which was to come, because thou hast taken to thee the great power and has reigned, or thy great power. So the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto the servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to them that fear thy name. Small and great should it be destroyed, them which destroy the earth. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the, his temple the ark of his testimonies. So there was lightning, and there were voices, thundering, 
an earthquake and a great hail. Father, bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Revelation chapter 11 takes us all the way to the end of the tribulation period where the Lord now is setting up his kingdom. Now I did not read to you the first six verses because <clears throat> I want you to be a little more relaxed as we get into why I understand that God is going to pour out his spirit upon the earth in the last days. God is going to take his church out. The church will be taken out before this tribulation period begins. We will be in heaven. We do not know exactly when the tribulation period begins once the church is taken out. Some believe it begins immediately, but the Bible doesn't tell us this. The Bible said there are many events that goes on in heaven, but we do know once the tribulation period begins is when Israel enters into a treaty with the Antichrist. We get that understanding from Daniel chapter 9 beginning with verse number 20 as we read down to verse number 27 and verse number 27 tells us that that's when we move into Daniel's 70th week and in the middle of that treaty called the abomination of desolation is when really all hell on earth breaks out in a way unlike this world has never seen. The first three and a half years is not what we would call a pre-wrath theory because there's going to be wars and there's going to be death and there's going to be all kinds of carnage and there are going to be two witnesses that's going to bring fire down from heaven trying to get people to wake up and realize that God is ready to come and set up his kingdom. And they will come in the power of Elijah and Moses and we will identify them in just a moment. But I want you to notice again in verse number 7 of Revelation chapter 10, God has made it very clear that, that this revelation that I'm explaining to you is no longer a mystery to the church. God has opened our eyes and God has given us an understanding. The mystery of God will be finished as he declared to his servants. God is beginning to sound, and God has given to us the understanding of the mystery. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. The mystery is the church. The mystery is the church age. And the mystery is unveiled, and everyone will understand once the church is raptured out. But we understand right now. God has given to us that understanding. We are living in the last days. And God has brought about a proliferation of understanding concerning what we call eschatology, the doctrine of his second coming. We are told in Daniel chapter 12, as you see there in your notes, that the unveiling of the understanding of revelation would not take place until the end time. In fact, we read in Daniel chapter 12 and verse number 8, when Daniel said, I heard, but I understood not, then said I, O Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And in verse number 9, he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed and sealed up till what class? Then he says in verse number 10, Many shall be purified and made white, 
and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But what does it say there? But the wise shall understand. You see, we have a, we're living in a world the way today where the wicked does not understand the righteousness of God, nor do they understand the morality of God. That's why we're legislating laws of immorality. We're living in a day and time where they just simply do no longer believe in, in moral values. And so everything is becoming un because they don't believe that it exists. But it does exist, and God makes it very clear that one day he's coming to judge the world. The wicked do not understand what God has to say about marriage. The wicked do not understand what God has to say about salvation. The wicked has no understanding of what God has to say about his coming. But God has given to his children understanding. And God has opened up our eyes, and we can now understand. And so as we get into Revelation chapter 11, as we read through verses 1 through 6, we find that God is going to raise up two witnesses. Everything is going to be centered now upon the temple of God. The temple of God is the centerpiece for the understanding of the book of Revelation. It's also the centerpiece of understanding the duration of the tribulation period. It's also the understanding of what is going to take place as the result of the temple being built. And we get a hint of all of that from Zerubbabel's temple. Now let's go back to Revelation chapter 11 and let's read verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 11, and I saw there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, how long is that, class? Thank you. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. How long is that, class? Thank you, class. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this matter be killed. These have power to shut up heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, you would not be able to understand this passage of Scripture unless you open your Bible and you compare it line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. The Bible says we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. 
As we get into the readings of Ezra and Nehemiah, we understand that they were in captivity there in Babylon, under that of the Babylonians and under that of the Persians for 70 years. As God had prophesied to Jeremiah that he, because of their rebellion against God, would be brought into that captivity. At the end of that 70 years, Daniel is praying and Daniel is asking the Lord in Daniel chapter 9, how long, O Lord, if 70 years are over, how long will it be until we get to go back to our land? And God reveals to Daniel, well, you're going back very soon. I'm opening the door. The 70 years has expired, and I'm going to show you what's going to happen to Israel uh, over the next 483 years, or 490 years, excuse me. And he gives Daniel understanding of what's going to happen. He prophesies that 483 years from that point, Messiah is going to come. He's going to be cut off. He's going to be crucified. Soon after he is cut off and crucified, the prince of the world is going to allow General Titus, a Roman a Roman general to come into the land of Israel and he's going to destroy their city, but most importantly, he's going to destroy their temple. And once their temple is destroyed, they will no longer have temple worship until the end of the age. And when the 70th week comes in, God will then once again allow them to build their temple. Now, between the 69th and the 70th week, we have what is called the church age. Messiah was cut off. Jesus Christ had prophesied uh, when uh, he was with the disciples. See this great temple that Herod has built that took him more than 40 years to build? It will be destroyed. Not one brick will be laying on top of another block or one block on another block. It'll be completely destroyed. There will be no longer any temple worship. And it was fulfilled exactly to the time that Jesus Christ had prophesied. And the children of Israel were scattered to the four corners of the world. They were driven from their homeland, and for 2,000 years they have not had any temple worship. But Daniel said that in the last days when you see the temple once again rebuilt and the Antichrist in the middle of that seven-year treaty going into the temple, know that horrible days are coming and that I'm coming to set up my kingdom here upon the earth. Now what we find interesting here in Revelation chapter 11, as they go in to measure the temple, they are instructed to take a reed, to take a measuring rod, and to measure the temple. They're talking, it's talking about the rebuilding of a temple. As we go over to Zechariah chapter 4, that's exactly what Joshua and Zerubbabel were doing. They were told to take a rod and to measure the second temple. And as they were measuring the second temple, if you'll take your Bibles and turn there just for a moment, as they were measuring the second temple, God gave them instructions on how his spirit would be poured out upon them. 
Notice in chapter 4 of Zechariah, verse number 1, the angel that talked with me came again and walked with me as a man that is wakened, or wakened, waked me as a man waketh out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, As I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, and all of the gold with a bowl upon the top of it. And the seven lamps thereof, seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. And the two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel, that, the one that had wakened him, that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not that these be? And I said, No, my Lord. I don't know what these be. Then he answered and he spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shouting, saying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of the host hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. And with those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which thou, which through though the golden pipes emptied the golden oil out of themselves? So he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So Zerubbabel is giving us a glimpse into the future. Zerubbabel had built the second temple. The second temple was not built with the same glory as Solomon's temple. Some of the old men that spent 70 years there in the land of captivity came back with the young men that were born in captivity. And when they saw the second temple, the young men rejoiced for the glory of the Lord was upon them. They rejoiced because the temple was built and they're back in their land of which their fathers were taken from. And now they're 
back in the land of promise and they're going to once again worship God. But the old men, they wept, they cried because they remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. And God was angry because God said, wait a minute, there's more glory in this temple than there was in Solomon's temple. God wants them to understand that this second temple is a picture of the glorious temple that's going to be here upon the earth when King Jesus comes to reign. And God had raised up his two servants to give us that understanding. Now we come to Revelation chapter 11 and another temple is being built. But that's not the temple of Zerubbabel. But God is giving them an understanding that God is preparing and making ready to build his temple. And it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be glorious. The land for which God is going to build his temple upon is going to be changed. And the mountain will be made into a plain. The temple will be glorious. It will be ten times larger than any temple that they've ever built. And King Jesus will come and reign over Jerusalem. And so God is preparing and he's raised up his two servants to make the announcement. And so they are now measuring the temple. It's all in preparation of what God is going to build. They don't understand, but God has given us an understanding. Now, if you take your Bibles and go back to Revelation chapter 4, there in Revelation chapter 4, we read again that God makes it very clear. He says, I will give power unto my two witnesses in verse number 3, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days clothed in sackcloth. For he says, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. These are the two men that were prophesied in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse number 14. These are the ones that the Lord has described that will come. They're making ready and they're making preparation for King Jesus to come and to establish his temple here upon the earth. Someone say amen. I don't know about you, but I get excited when I get to reading what's going on and realize that we're living in this last day as God is preparing and making ready. God is very interesting here that God calls these two men his candlesticks. I want you to notice that. I want you to underscore that in your mind. We see that in Zechariah chapter 4. We see it in Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 4. Notice again in Zechariah chapter 4, verse number 11, just in case you forgot, he says, these two trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof, verse number 12, he answered and said, what are these again? And he told him, he said, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Did you know that we are also candlesticks that are supposed to be standing by the Lord throughout the whole earth? Do you understand when we read over in the book of Revelation chapter 1, there are seven candlesticks and the Lord gives to us the understanding when John says, well, I don't understand. What are these seven candlesticks? 
And the Lord says, these seven candlesticks are the seven churches. We are the seven, we are the candlesticks that represent the Lord throughout the church age. And God has poured out His Spirit upon us as He poured out His Spirit upon Zerubbabel. And just as Zerubbabel and Joshua were to be a witness for the Lord, just as these two great men in the tribulation period are to be a witness for the Lord, we are to be witnesses. For God has poured out His Holy Spirit upon us. For you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. He said, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. God has made that very clear. And every one of us one day will stand before God, and we must give an account. God has made it very clear that throughout every age, His Spirit has been poured out upon the earth. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, verse number 28. God says again that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days when I pour out my spirit. I've had people criticize me by by declaring that there's going to be another great revival. And that revival is going to take place once the church is raptured out. And God is going to pour out His Spirit upon the earth. And there are going to be millions of people from all nations and all kindreds and all tongues, including the people of Israel, that are going to put their faith in King Jesus. Many people are going to be saved but there are going to be billions of people that are going to be lost and going to end up in an eternal hell. But praise God, we are his candlestick, and God has made it very clear that he's going to take out his church because that's his bride. He's going to bring them out of this world into heaven, and God is going to raise up another candlestick called Israel. And God is going to anoint his people Israel. And 144,000 of those are going to go forth preaching the gospel throughout the entire kingdom of this world. And then on top of that, God is going to give them and to the rest of the world two witnesses that will come in the power of Elijah and Moses. I personally believe they are Elijah and Moses, and God is once again going to give a demonstration of his power through human beings to where this world will have no excuse. And then once they're taken out and they think, well, we're done with all that witnessing, God is going to shout the gospel from the air through his angels. There is the grace of God. People will have the opportunity to get saved in the tribulation period but not those that have heard it in this age and continually reject it. 
If you've heard it once and you understood that Jesus Christ loves you, that he came into this world, he went to a cross, he died for you, he was buried, he rose again the third day for the redemption of your sins and for the justification of your sins as he shed his blood there upon the cross of Calvary. And now he's ascending into heaven to stand before your heavenly father now as your mediator. If you reject that message, then you're not going to have a second chance. You're not going to have an opportunity during the tribulation period. We find that the abomination of desolation that takes place in the middle of the tribulation period is mentioned 11 times throughout the word of God. God warns us when we see that time coming, when we see it approaching, well, we need to take heed. We need to be ready. For in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man coming. The Bible makes it very clear once the church is taken out and those that have heard this message, and some have heard it over and over and over again and continually reject it. According to 2 Thessalonians, the Bible says in chapter 2, beginning verse number 4 through verse number 9, that God is going to send them strong delusions so that they're going to believe the lie of the Antichrist. So that they all may be deceived, that they all may be damned. Why? Because they believed not the gospel when they had the opportunity to hear and believe it. We have a job to do, class. We have a responsibility to be witnesses for him. One day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for being the kind of a witness that we need to be. God has given us the oil that we need. He's given us the power that we need. God has given to us the understanding that we need. He has enlightened our hearts and our minds. Now we have a responsibility to go into the world and tell them about Jesus. This is very important for us to understand. Let me just say, again, as I emphasize the importance of the understanding of the abomination of the desolation. As I said earlier, it's mentioned 11 times in Scripture. It's mentioned by Daniel the first time in Daniel chapter 9, verse number 27. It's reaffirmed again in Daniel chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. And then again, it's reaffirmed in Daniel chapter 12. And then as we read over in the book of Revelation, we see it's affirmed again there in Revelation chapter 13. God gives emphasis about it here in Revelation chapter 11. Jesus Christ gave emphasis to it in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, verses 11 through verse number 14. It's found over in Mark's gospel. It's found in Luke's gospel. It's about time we understand that eventually that temple is going to be built. We understand right now there's a Zionist group of Jews. They've got everything ready. They have the plans all drawn up. Uh, they have the cornerstone. They have all the rolls made up. They have the ashes of the red heifer already prepared. They want to have their temple. We're living in unusual days. We're living in very exciting days. We need to understand that the desolation abomination is going to soon be upon us. It's only three and a half years away. We find that God is going to raise up once the church has taken out two witnesses. <laughs> we read in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, 
that we have an explanation, or pardon me, in uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse number 5 and 6, who one of those witnesses will be. We're told in Malachi chapter 4, verse number 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, if the world at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ would have received John the Baptist as that Elijah, then John would have been that Elijah, but he wasn't. And God makes no mistakes. God wasn't saying, now I will send you John the Baptist, and he will be that Elijah. No, if they would have received Christ at that time, and then God would allowed Christ to set up his kingdom. But that was not in God's plans. God knew that his son had to go to a cross. God knew that his only begotten son had to go to a cross and had to die for the sins of the people of his day, the day that Jesus was here on the earth, and all of those that look forward to his coming. But God's love expands to the whole world throughout every age, throughout every generation. And God also understood that there is more time that is needed. And so it was not received. It was all in the plan of God. You see, it wasn't those Jews that many people hate that they say that crucified Jesus Christ. No, it was the Heavenly Father that crucified His own Son. Jesus Christ, wait a minute, it was Jesus Christ that willingly laid down His life. He could have walked away. But He says, I have power to lay it down. I have power to raise it up. Jesus Christ willingly went to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ willingly went to Golgotha. Jesus Christ willingly laid himself down on that cross. Why did Jesus Christ willingly do all of this? Because that's how much he loves you. He was willing to suffer your hell. He understood the agony of your hell. He understood the eternality of your hell. He understood that hell is a horrible place. Hey, would you mind taking those earbuds out? I would appreciate that. Thank you. Jesus Christ understands just how horrible God, his heavenly father's judgment is. And so Jesus Christ was willing to suffer the agony of your hell there upon that cross for six hours because of his great love for you. Jesus Christ went to that cross. He took your sins. He took the sins of this world and we have no idea how ugly those sins are. Just think about what went on here in the Cathedral City Valley in just the last few hours, in the last 12 hours. Think of the sodomy. Think of the abomination. Think of the wickedness. Think of the lying and the stealing. Think of all the corruption, the hate and the murdering that all went on in the last 12 hours. Jesus Christ took every one of those wicked sins and all the sins of all generations and they were nailed on the cross. And through his precious blood, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, there upon that cross, purged us from our sins. <clears throat> there is power in the blood. 
And so the word of God makes it very clear that God had another time for Elijah to come. The Bible says that this is Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah. God makes no mistakes. God knows what he's talking about. This was not someone that comes in the appearance of Elijah. This is not someone that comes in the power of Elijah. This is Elijah that comes to earth during the tribulation period. We don't know how he gets there. Some say, well, is he a man that's born that comes through the matrix of his mother? No, I believe God sends him here. I believe that suddenly this man that was raptured up, this man that was caught up by a chariot of fire, when the angels of the Lord come and took him out of this world, God's going to bring him back. And I believe that he's going to come in the power and in the grace and the glory of what he had when he was here upon the earth the first time. But he's still going to be a mortal man. He'll still be able to be put to death. But while he's here, he's going to do the same thing he did before. He'll bring fire down from heaven. He'll perform miracles. And the world will know that there's a man walking upon this earth that was just like the man of the days of Elijah. You know, the interesting thing is, if God could do it back then, God can do it now. And God will do it then. And then the Bible also tells us that there's another man. This man is Moses. You say, well, why do you believe it's Moses? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse number 28, through chapter 17, verse number 3, where Jesus said, verily, verily, when he was speaking to the disciples, and he's talking to the three, Peter, James, and John, he said, there'll be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, And notice they were transfigured before them. And his face, that is the face of Jesus, did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, which is Elijah, talking with him. Now, they saw Jesus Christ coming. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ gave to them the understanding that this is his second coming. And they saw both Moses and Elijah at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now you say, preacher, I don't know if I can believe that because it doesn't really say that. Oh, yes, it does. If you study your Bible. But what you have to do, you have to go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you will notice there in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse number 16, Peter said, For we have not followed cunning devised fables when we made unknown unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. And there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
And the voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the what class? And what is he speaking about? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, why did he mention Moses and Elijah? Because they're going to be a part of that second coming. And they're going to come and warn the world to be prepared and be ready. You say, well, boy, I don't see any grace or any mercy or any love during the tribulation period. Well, there it is. God is pouring out His Spirit. God is giving warning. God is doing everything that He can to help us to be ready. Well, I'm just about ready to close this, but notice the ministry of the two witnesses. Revelation chapter 11, verse number 3, he says, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. How interesting is that? You see, not only will they bring fire down from heaven, not only will they turn water into blood, not only will they do all the same miracles that Elijah and Moses did, but for three and a half years, they're going to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom of the coming of Jesus Christ to a lost world. And you can be sure that CNN's going to be there, Fox News is going to be there, and hopefully none of you, but maybe some of you will be there. How, how important it is that you hear now, because you probably won't understand then if you understand now and reject Jesus Christ. But friend, it is coming. Mark it down. He said, well, that seems too far-fetched. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. You don't believe the Bible when Moses turned water into blood. You don't believe the Bible when those ten plagues, by the way, those ten plagues that Moses brought down upon Egypt, every one of those represented one of their gods that they worship. They worship the God of the flies. They worship the God of the frogs. They worship all these gods, and God brought them their gods. <laughs> God said, you want to worship the God of the locusts? I'll give you gods of locusts. You want to worship the God of the fleas? I'll give you fleas. Okay, you name your frogs. What frog god, Dagon, or whatever. I'll give you those gods. Boy, the whole land was overflowed with those gods. And God is going to cast down all the wickedness of this world. He's going to let the world realize. But, you know, sadly, there's only going to be a remnant of people that will be saved. God makes it very clear that he will protect his people. But how sadly the people will not respond that are not saved. The ones that are not saved will become more and more rebellious. We read over in Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 5 that when Jonah went through Nineveh preaching in sackcloth and ashes, all of Nineveh repented. But we read according to Revelation chapter 9 verse number 20, 21, they're not going to repent. They'll not repent of their thieving, their stealing, their murdering, their idolatry, their immorality. They'll not repent of their drugs or anything else, but rather they will blaspheme the name of God, even though they've heard it and they've seen it. You know, people are still... Why does that surprise some people? 
when there are people today, when they hear the gospel, they blaspheme his name and walk out. Oh, they sit there, I'm not coming back to that church. I don't believe a blankety-blank thing that blankety-blank preacher said. And they go away cursing God. Well, have fun cursing him in a place called the lake of fire for all of eternity. Because it's going to happen. God made it very clear that it will happen. You look at the prophecies that have already been fulfilled. And you say, well, it's not going to happen. I don't believe that. Well, you know, Ezekiel prophesied that in the last days there'd be a nation called Russia. There'd be a nation called Libya. There'd be a nation called Iraq and Iran, Persia. He prophesied that in the last days the nation of Ethiopia would still be there. He prophesied that those nations would come down to another nation called Israel. Israel was a nation that was forgotten for 2,600 years. They didn't have a name. They didn't have a flag. They were no longer a people. They were just simply scattered. But God resurrected them from the graveyard of this world, as we see over in Ezekiel 38. And God raised them up in these last days. A miracle took place. God put them back in their homeland. But you say, I don't believe the Bible. Well, God had prophesied that you, that you crucify me, and I want you to understand that not long from now, the prince of this world, as Daniel prophesied a thousand years earlier, is going to come and he's going to tear down this wall. He's going to tear down this city and this temple will no longer exist. There'll be no more temple worship. There has been no more temple worship. You know, they don't offer up lambs anymore. They do offer up chickens, but not lambs. There's no temple to offer them up. Jesus prophesied by all that. Yeah, it's all been prophesied in the Bible. The Bible said and prophesied in the last days, there'll be same-sex marriage. We'll be living in the days that they lived in. Women will give up their natural use, and women will be with women, men with men. And a mother will no longer have the natural desires of a mother. The unborn baby will be murdered, and there'll be no mercy, no grace on that. Women are protesting in the streets right now, saying, my body belongs to me. And that unborn child is not yours or anyone else. It's mine to do whatever I want because it's my body and I'll destroy the body that's in me. And we give them the rights and they're burning down churches for arguing their rights. This is the world we're living in. Jesus prophesied that that would be the world we're living in. Wickedness would abound. The love of many would wax cold. And you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, one day you'll wake up standing before God and be cast into a lake of fire. God makes that very clear. And you say, well, preacher, that sounds mean and angry. I heard a preacher the other day say, you know, all these preachers that get up there and they preach God's judgment and they reprove and rebuke people. Shame on them. We need more love in the world right now. Well, love doesn't bring people to repentance. Warning them of their wicked ways. There's the love of God. I could say to my children, I love you, but if I let them play in the freeway, does that really mean that I love them? But if I tell them, don't you go out there, if you do, I'm going to reprove, I'm going to rebuke, I'm going to do whatever I can to stop you. There's love. None of this makes any sense. Love puts up boundaries. Whoa, love builds walls. Whoa, love protects. But today we find that people tear down those walls and those boundaries and say, go have at it, you know. Sex should be free. Okay, well, have, have free sex. Well, how does it feel to live with AIDS? How does it feel to live with gonorrhea? How does it feel to live 
uh, with unwanted children that you brought into this world and you have to pay child support for the rest of your life. How does it feel when you disobey God? How does it feel when you have an abortion, you live the rest of your life tormented by the guilt of taking that life? You know, you can, you can despise God, you can mock God, but wait a minute, God's word is true. You need to mark it down that when you violate God's word, there is a judgment coming. Good preaching. So the world watches. We read in Revelation chapter 11, verse number 9, these two men, they're put to death. You know, God allows that to happen. It didn't happen because the devil has more power than these two men. God allowed him to have that power. And so they're put to death and they lay there in the streets for three days and three nights and a half a day. And no one removes their bodies. CNN News is there, Fox News is there, MSNBC is there, ABC, NBC, and all the other networks are there. Cameras are all over the place. There are police there, there are guards there, and no one's allowed to get near those bodies. And every day they're watching, they turn on the TV, say, yeah, they're still laying there. They're still laying there. Look, notice the flies are flying around them. Look, 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 they're still laying there. They're still laying there. And after three and a half days, suddenly they stand to their feet. Amen. And all of a sudden, boom, they're gone. And there comes an earthquake. And the city rumbles. And the tenth part of the city is destroyed. And 7,000 people die. And only a remnant of people fear God, trust in him. Wow. You'd think at that point the whole world would get saved. We've been watching this for three days and three nights and a half a day, and all of a sudden that happened. Maybe this, there is something to I may, I may just say, but though the world doesn't, only a remnant. You know, how, how sad is that? I don't understand that, but that's what the Bible says is going to happen. Let me just say in closing that we're living in exciting days. There's a story that's found over in, Revel, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, in verse number 1 through 6. Jesus talks about in preparation for his coming, there are ten virgins. And these ten virgins are preparing for their groom. But in order for them to enter into the wedding, they have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. The Bible said, if you have not the Spirit of God, you are none of His. There are a lot of people out there that say, oh, you know, I'm a child of God. I'm one of His brides. But they don't have the Holy Spirit living within them. And Jesus gives a story like this in Matthew's Gospel 25, verse number 1 through 6. He says, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps. And when the... And when went forth to meet the bridegroom, and five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, and the wise took oil in their vessels. And with their lamps, while the bridegroom tarried, they slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there's the midnight cry, 
And at midnight there was a cry that was made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. Jesus said in verse number 30, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. He said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, Watch therefore and be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Has God poured the Holy Spirit into your life? Do you have the Spirit of God in your life? You see, that day that I invited Jesus Christ in my heart, something happened. I can't explain it to you, but all of a sudden I knew that God was real. All of a sudden, I knew that there is a Calvary and that Jesus loves me and he went to the cross and he died for me. I didn't understand what the anointing of the Holy Spirit was all about or the filling of the Holy Spirit, but there was something in me that I didn't have before. My eyes were open. I, opened. I was excited about the things of God. I was looking forward. I, I was not attending church. I was not a church goer. I didn't really know the Lord. I wasn't sure what I was going to do when I stood before God. But for some reason, after I prayed and invited Jesus in my heart, I knew that Jesus was my Savior. I knew that I needed to go to church. I knew that I needed to be baptized. I knew that I needed to live for God. And for some reason, I was willing to do all of that and do it enthusiastically. No one had to persuade me. No one had to convince me. The preacher didn't have to sit down and open his Bible and take 20 minutes explaining to me why I need to be baptized. I knew that I needed to do that because the Spirit of God took residence in my life and said, you're my child now. These are things that you will do. I wasn't persuaded. I wasn't enticed. I wasn't motivated. I wasn't encouraged by man. Someone didn't offer me a free Bible or a free you know, trip to Disneyland or whatever. I knew and I wanted to be close to God. Do you know for sure that he knows you? Are you filled with his spirit that the spirit of God have residence in your life? Something else that we see here, there are lampstands, but they're not, they're not really ready. They've got the anointing of God upon them, but for some reason the flesh is winning out. Peter warned us of this. We find in First Peter chapter one and Second Peter chapter one, verse number four through seven. I'll be very quick. I'm just about done. Whereby there are given to us exceeding and great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world through lust. We give all diligence to add to our faith. And he goes and he gives us a list of things that when you're truly saved, if you're a lampstand for God, you're going to add virtue. You're going to add knowledge. You're going to grow in the grace of God. And then he says something quite interesting when we get down to verse number 10 where he says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. For there is an entrance that shall be ministered unto you abundantly, abundantly into the kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that word uh, entrance means a welcome mat. 
It means that if I'm truly saved, I'm going to be concerned about how I live my life. I'm going to be concerned about when I stand before God, am I going to stand in confidence or will I stand ashamed? It gives me the understanding that if I live my life faithfully unto the Lord, there's going to be a big, huge welcome mat and a coronation. But those that refuse to live their lives, we are told in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 28 that they may appear without confidence, ashamed before him at his coming. I don't want that. I want to be able to know that I can stand before him with confidence and not ashamed at his appearing. Where are you this morning? With every head bowed.